Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast on all things thick. My name is Colin Lambert. I'm Managing Editor of P&L. Um, I've managed to drag myself out of my bed after a late night watching the cricket. Cue for tumbleweed. Um, and with <laughs> me is, is Galen Stops, who we've managed to drag out of a pre-July 4th Independence Day party. I, I've got to kick off this week, Galen. I, I thought of you immediately. I saw the press release. Um, one of your favourite subjects, the BIS, so the Central Bank. Central Bank has come up with da-da, an innovation hub for central banks. I know. It's my uh, so regular regular listeners will be well aware of my my skepticism regarding regarding innovation hubs in general, and that's a, that's at regular banks, right? I just a central <laughs> bank innovation hub. I, I I shudder to think what that's actually like in there. Um, you know, second, I mean, I remember when I, I went around a bank and they were touring me around that innovation hub once. And I'm not making this up. They were literally thrilled to show me they'd put the plugs on top of the desks instead of underneath them, like on the ground. Like they were genuinely oh, like pointing it out. Like this was... <laughs> oh, no, so I thought like... normally it was a whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There were the requisite like uh, bean bags and rearrangeable furniture and they'd like, they'd stripped all the walling off so you could see the piping and stuff like that. So I, I shudder to think what, what a central bank's idea of, of an innovation oh, hub is going to look like. It'll be fine. They'll, 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 they'll be sitting around in the bean bags ordering really weird coffees going... Well, I don't know. Should we cut another quarter of a point? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I uh, I don't know who would take the other side of this bet, but I, I'd be willing to bet good money that beyond like a few well-meaning white papers, absolutely nothing of use or value comes out of a central bank innovation hub. Oh, Galen, you go to me. You know I can never resist a, resist a bet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess on a semi-serious note, they, there is a lot of chatter around digital currencies. So maybe this could be a, a forum where the central banks can actually get some coordination going around digital currencies. Um, but yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, I mean, it's one of those. I mean, I guess it's a broader question. Is there? I mean. We're looking at low volatility in markets. You know, innovation requires investment. Do you actually think there's going to be sort of a slowdown in innovation? We had a, a long period where nothing was done because everyone was spending their money on regulation. And then we had a brief period where people were coming up with ideas again. You know, maybe a year ago it started. Um, is there a threat to this from the ongoing sort of, you know, just basically lack of action? So I think I think that the the short answer is, is yes, there is a threat to it. The the more accurate answer is a little bit more complex. Um, I think I think there is still space and room for innovation. Um, I think though it, it depends where you're going to look for it might change. So um, you talk yeah. about this on the lack of vault. I had um, obviously you know being July fourth uh, week here, it's it's a little slow. Uh, a lot of people are away. So really? I went for a, I went for a pub lunch with someone uh, earlier this week, and I was chatting to this person. And they're kind of on the market making side of things, and they were very very bleak on their outlook for uh, FX market making right now because Ooh. of this this low vol environment. Um, I mean, part of it was you know I was saying you know, normally you know I speak to a lot of people who have been around a while, and they'll say yeah you know. Everybody always says volatility is dead, but it always comes back, and, and this will come back. Uh, but this person was like, logically, you would think it would come back. 
but they kind of made the point that if I if I'd said to they said to them four years ago, and and not getting political here, these were their words, not mine. But they said that if you told me, you know, four years ago, that there'd be a clown in the White House, a clown about to take over Great Britain, trade wars, geopolitical tensions flaring everywhere, uh, all the kind of the craziness that you see in the world right now, uh, I would have. They would have said they would have been like, great, the the good times are back. Let's start trading this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But by contrast, that hasn't happened. You know, central banks, they said, uh, are actually pretty seem pretty happy to keep this and maintain this environment where they have, you know, stable currency prices. Um, so they're saying, you know, if, if all this stuff isn't moving the market, it, it's hard for them to see what, what's going to come along yeah. that will change that. Um, that's, and, and that's an interesting that, one, though, because, I mean, the central banks, yes, they do, I mean, they're happy with the situation, and I think the central banks' monetary policies have got a lot to do with what is a lack of vol. But... Um, at the same time, we've got um, governments talking currency wars, which means you've got a central bank on one hand saying, yeah, everything's great because everything's nice and stable. We can plan. You know, we can make good a, a judge assessment of where the economy is going. And on the other hand, you've got governments going, no, 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 I want another 5% off my currency. And you think that would create some vol, wouldn't you? But not even that's doing it. Maybe because we're not believing yeah. the politicians. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I think that's certainly part of what happened with Brexit, right, which was, you know, at first the, the pound would get a little bit jittery every time there was some news. But now yeah. it seems like everyone just kind of, no matter what happens, kind of shrugs and says, OK, well, let's just wait and see how this all shakes out. Um, yeah. So I get that. And so, so this person was saying that, the, that while they're bleak on, on kind of the, the actual trading aspect of FX, uh, they argued that, that where they see actually potential for for innovation, for um, you know, running a good business is is on kind of technology firms that are focused mm-hmm. on making things uh, more cost efficient, cheaper, uh, and more effective for firms doing business in FX and kind of financial markets more broadly. Yeah, and I mean, that, and that's something that we, we touched on due, with all week, due disrespect. Right? Sorry, yeah, I say exactly with all due disrespect to your um, lunch companion. Um, I'm wondering if they're a little late to that party because as we said last week there are a tremendous amount of these firms out there um, and you know, the, yes a good idea will always succeed but um, scope for that good idea I would suggest is a lot slimmer now because there are so many people putting so many ideas into the market that, so, you know, so you the, think, that you think seems the, overbanked, overbroked as well So, so you, think, you think the, the uh, Tech providers that can that can give cost efficiencies. You think that's an overcrowded market? Um, I think I think potentially yes, because there are. Well, I mean, there, there are a, well, a shed load of fintechs out there. Um, I guess at the moment, there's what there isn't a great deal of. I don't think is competition in different fields. There's a lot of fintechs out there with good ideas, and the ideas are all slightly different. Um, but they're going to eventually sort of coagulate to one or sorry three or four areas um i mean to me the big area is going to be post-trade i, I think we're squeeze we squeeze a lot of efficiency out of the trading mechanism so i'm not sure how much room there is in the trading mechanism for more efficiency beyond i'm going to charge you less bro than the next guy um post-trade i think as an industry there's plenty of room and something we touched on a couple of weeks ago that I got some feedback on as well is the pre-trade risk, you know, making that more efficient. 
there are certainly people out okay. there, and say so one or two of our listeners got in touch about that with me, saying it's, a, it's an issue they're trying to really, really push, is this sort of pre-trade control, risk controls. Um, I guess that was when we were talking about the City PB announcement. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 if it's a really good idea, there may be room, but I just worry that there's a lot of good ideas being thrown around out there, and quite a lot of them are two years into the making. So moving so, into that space now may not be great. Okay, fantastic. I love that answer. And you know why, Colin? Because you disagree. No, no, no. Because you're saying that, that, that there's not much more efficiency squeezed out on the trading side. Um, that, that this kind of cost-efficient technology play is, is a little bit crowded right now. Um, yeah. Thus, I hope you read uh, the article uh, that we published this week that I wrote on Dmitry Galanov's new venture. A new trading platform, so on the trading side, seeking to be more cost-effective. <laughs> Bro war. <laughs> <laughs> you walked right into that one. I did, yes, I did, yeah. Um, I, but you know what? I mean, it's it's an interesting one because I mean, the platform what is it? Twenty four exchange. They're they're yep. going to start off with um, NDS, and they've been kicking this idea around for a few months. I know. Um, I think you know, um, Dimitri and Paul Millwood, the former head of FX tech at CBOE or BATS or Hotspot, um, or all three actually, um, I think they've been chatting <laughs> this, throwing this idea around for, for you know, the best part of a year uh, now. Uh, yeah, um, I've been hearing about it for a while. Yeah. Um, the NDF piece, I think, is is the one of the interesting aspects of it, and that might mean it's got some decent legs. Um, the other one is, I think, also... To defend my um, stance, in your article as well, there's definitely a hint that they want to go multi-asset class. Yeah. And that means, and, and they're doing that because that will be their hedge not, against, not, well, if FX not a hint, they're, is they're low, very explicit about that. Well, okay, yeah. So, so, but then I think, no, I, I still think it's a, it's a business hedge of, of, of FX vol staying where it is and volumes being so, you know, Bizarrely, to use the word volatile, because you know FX volumes are either you know it's feast or famine at the moment. Um, so it's kind of a business hedge against that by saying, well, we can go multi-asset class with this. Um, the NDF piece is interesting to me. The other thing around it is they're they're not bothering with the US, are they? No. So so this is one of the interesting things. Actually, I didn't see reported anywhere else, actually, which is, like, pretty, pretty significant, right? Which is yeah. that the uh, the exchange is an off-SEF exchange. Um, yeah. What that means is that the venue, which is based in Bermuda, cannot have any, quote-unquote, U.S. persons as members for yeah. NDF trading. So if you're located <laughs> in the U.S., you can access the platform, but it has to be via sponsored access from a member of the exchange who has to be a non-U.S. entity, mm. which is why it has its, it has its operations are in Bermuda. The staff and the, the staff looking after the tech are based in Stamford, Connecticut, and the servers are in LD4 in the U.K. Global company from start. Perfect. <laughs> um, I mean, I, th I think historically Connecticut has been very good with tax breaks for companies. 
Um, Stanford, Connecticut, I actually know quite well because I go there every year, and what a treat it is. Um, um, but I, I hear um, Bermuda's pretty good on the tax front as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, but ever since um, UBS moved out of Stanford, uh, downtown Stanford's a bit... In, yeah, a little bit dead sometimes. It's uh, We were there actually the weekend after UBS moved out, moved their trading floors out of Stanford. And there's a Morton Steakhouse, for which I think most listeners will be aware of. It's a, quite a, a, a top-end U.S. steak chain. They closed their doors literally the day after UBS moved their trading floor. So um, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me they're around there. I, to get back to more germane matters... The interaction with U.S. banks will be interesting because obviously Citi and J.P. Morgan and Goldman's um, are three huge players in just generally in FX, obviously. But um, Citi and Goldman's in particular have good, strong NDF franchises um, or emerging markets franchises, Citi especially with their on-the-ground talent. Um, the interesting thing is, I, I, I'm not quite sure how this would work out legally, but I was looking at some numbers um, from a conversation I had with someone earlier this year. And if you look at the NDF volumes over the last, from I think it was April 16, which is the BIS survey year, to April 18, um, in the US, volumes pretty much did nothing. In April 2016, they were about $46.5 Sorry, in October and sorry, in October 18, so two and a half years later, they were 50 billion. So they're up about, you know, what's that, about seven, eight percent. In London, in April 16, volumes were 60 billion a day. In October, it was 140, 139 yards a day. So it's more than doubled. So that is significant. Of, yeah, it's quite a large increase, that isn't it? Yeah. Um, so in terms of the um, where the volume is. You could argue that the growth all seems to be coming in London. There'll be growth, obviously there'll be growth in Asia, but the FX committees in Asia don't break out NDF data. Um, but clearly London's where a lot of this stuff is going on. So they, I looked at it first of all and thought, well, yeah, okay, maybe they don't need the US. But then you think, how much of that volume is being transacted by US institutions and hedge funds in, you know, within the US? that they seem to be missing out on. It's an interesting concept. I mean, did, yeah, did Dimitri, you I, spoke to Dimitri. Did he have any real, any sort of real reason behind it? Um, I, I think it was... I, I, we didn't kind of go into it too much, but I mean, I think it was no. largely because of just the the regulatory regime in the US. Yeah, regulatory requirement. Yeah. The, the amount of time it takes, the paperwork, etc., um, yeah, they decided it was easier to to stay off and have this sponsored access model. Um, yeah, but I mean, one thing I'm curious about. I mean, so he says it kind of they're starting with NDFs because you know it's it's as you say it's it's fast growing and and more of this market is going electronic. There's not that much more of kind of the spot market to really electronify. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah. so so because <clears throat> because by going into NDFs for e-trading, they're going into a pie that's already growing. So there's kind of yes. there's liquidity that they can grab that they don't necessarily have to wrest away from someone else, right? I think that's yeah. kind of part of the thesis. Yeah. Um, another thing he mentions is is that they see kind of EBS as the main competitor in this space, um, which is and they think the fact, <clears throat> which I think is right, yeah. Um, and they think the fact that that was kind of just acquired by an exchange um, probably helps them. And I, I assume 
what he's referring to there is, because I've heard this from multiple people who are kind of competitors, you know, inevitably when you have a big merger like CME, um, it, it does take away, uh, what the argument is it takes away, um, you know, people's time, resources, attention, etc. Mm. Um, so it, it's yeah. a good time to be, to be going in. Um, but the flip side of that is I spoke to another platform recently who's kind of uh, talking about different product types and where their focus is. Um, and they, they kind of argued that they weren't that interested in NDFs right now just because, yes, even though it's going more electronic, it's, um, it, it's still, a, relatively speaking, very small market. I mean, so the point in case mm. this particular person was saying they were much more focused on for example, swaps, which we've, you know, we've yeah. discussed uh, the potential there. They're like, you know, you look at the spots, the swaps market. If you get just a fraction of that onto your platform, right, that's that's going to be a big boost for your volumes. Whereas NDS, yeah. even if you scrap and you get, you know, let's say you got like, you know, fifteen percent market share, right? Yeah. What does that even translate into in terms of the actual volumes on your platform? Mm. I mean, and at a lower cost, of course, because it's, it's, it's going to be a cost-effective solution. Um, well, <clears throat> a couple of observations on that, I would say, is that um, the swaps piece has also got a, a strong incumbent in uh, matching, because um, the low-hanging fruit in swaps is sub one week. But, you know, matching is doing 300 yards a day of that. I mean, there's, there's a lot more there, believe me. But then a lot of that volume is also customer roles, which is done bilaterally because, frankly, you know, they're going to get a choice price. They'll get a mid-market rate on, on, uh, to benchmark to. Um, I think, you know, that's difficult to prize away. There's also the fact that NDS is cleared um, and at $1 a million, which is cheaper than most PBs now. Um, yeah. So, which swaps isn't. So, I, I kind of get the. I, I think if you're if you're a startup company, which this is, and I think one thing is, you know, they've put some of their own money into this. Um, although Dimitri obviously sold fast match, so he's not going to be. Uh, he's he's probably got the money to put into it. Um, but I would I would argue this is probably the. Um, I don't want to use the phrase easy win. I'm trying to think. I can't think of something else. But this would be your easy win because you're right. I mean, there was there was a really interesting number, and it, this could be an anomaly. It could be about bilateral API being misreported. But in the London turnover survey, and I think we'll be getting in April's numbers later this month, but in the London turnover survey, NDF volumes between um, dealers, reporting dealers, like – absolutely leapt to about 20, uh, from 20 yards a day to 40 yards a day. So all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of dealers doing business with each other in NDS. And I couldn't quite work that one out. And I'll, that's why I want another set of data to see whether it's confirmed. But if that is actually happening, then there's your opportunity right there. Because, you know, grab 10% of that plus some other volume you've already got ready to go. You're probably at four or five yards a day. And there's a lot of yeah. platforms out there now that are doing four or five yards a day. And and what do you make of so in the article one of the things that that, that Dimitri talks about is is about this cosplay which we kind of touched on earlier. Um, and he was kind of saying you know that, that although the cost of technology keeps going down and you know relative to twenty years ago has has collapsed almost. Um, yeah. 
the the people who are participating on exchanges have seen their profit margins come in under increasing pressure, but the exchanges themselves haven't really felt the same um, pressure. Um, and there is there is one rather good quote I like, which is he's kind of saying, you know, everything that exchanges now is is electronic. It runs on computers. And he says, you know, but while computers have been cheap, getting cheaper every day for the past 10 years, the exchanges have become more expensive every day for the past 10 years. And and this kind of disconnect is what they're trying to to pitch themselves at, saying, you know, because we're going to use like new technology um, that's going to give basically the same uh, performance. Although obviously being NDS, it doesn't have to have the same latency performance, but basically no. giving you the same performance <clears throat> at a fraction of the cost. That's kind of their play here as well. It's it's very much a yeah. a, a cost play. Do you think that that this is going to resonate just in general and also specifically for NDS? Well, I think, I mean, there's a real good chance it would resonate generally, purely and simply because, you know, it's a fact. You know, um, to go back to your conversation with your market maker earlier this week, one of the reasons why they are a little bit gloomy around the, the future is because, um, you know, their margins are, are, are way for thin now, and um, they're not being rescued in terms of, you know, they kind of grew up on a market where we were doing, you know, two and a half trillion dollars a spot a day, you know, every day. And there was a good piece of the pie for everyone to go around. Now you've got days where you're probably doing, <clears throat> I mean, as a market, I don't know, anything, you know, 1.8 yards a day, a trillion a day. <clears throat> and then maybe the odd two and a half, three trillion days. But, yeah, yeah. It's just the, the, the numbers just aren't there. So I think on that basis, the cost argument will always be a good one. Um we should also, um, you know, I, mean, I, I was sounding sceptical earlier, but that's my job. But we sh we also shouldn't um, underestimate the credibility that Dmitry Galanov has got in actually um, not quite disrupt. I wouldn't use the word disrupting because I don't think Fast Match disrupted the industry. It was just a, a, a slightly smarter version of what was already out there in terms of the technology. But we shouldn't underestimate his ability to do the same again. You know, he, he is a, a true advocate of using the latest technology. Um, so I would argue that, yeah, while the latency issue is not going to be a big, a bit, a big thing here, the technology is probably going to be pretty good. <clears throat> and I would imagine he's already identified the tech he wants and the opportunity set he sees. So, yes, I kind of think that argument will resonate. Um, because he's going to get into COOs of FX businesses, you know, just at the banks. And if you can turn around um, and show them a, a 0.05 of a pip improvement, they're going to take it. And probably less. Because everyone's trying to squeeze the last bit of blood out of every stone they can. So, yeah, um, the timing on that, that side of it is, is quite impressive. Um, the downside for him, I think, is that uh, CME, and this is not something that I think exchange groups tend to do, and I think this is his, another one of his points, but um, CME <clears throat> could very easily just turn around and go, hmm, someone after, after one of our key patches, and don't get me wrong, NDS is a key factor for EBS. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone's after one of our patches, that's fine. We can, we can go, we can, we can go um, discount bro for a year. We have the, they have the pockets. Um, yeah. You know, okay. How much of a cost efficiency is this new platform going to give me? Okay, they reckon it's a dollar a million. Fine, cut bro by a dollar ten a million. 
So yeah. that's the challenge I, I think they'll face. Now, whether CME will do that or not, they may just sit there and say, like, it's fine. You know, as, as one of my favorite quotes from every, whenever it comes up is, oh, we welcome competition. Excellent. You welcome someone who <laughs> may put you out of business. Yeah. I, I do love that quote <laughs> as well. Yes. So, yeah, so I, I kind of think there's, there's, there is an opportunity set there. Um, and there's, and, and yeah, there's a track record. So we shall see, I suppose. I mean, the, the, the concern might also be what happens to loop back to your first, um, point today. What happens if volatility just drops off in NDS? Because at the moment there's yeah. plenty of fun to be had for everyone. But if volatility also dies in emerging markets um, and volume drops off, then that becomes a little more interesting um, for them. I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of your market maker's friend, your market maker friend's um, thing on, you know, will volatility come back? Because, I mean, I'm on record on this podcast, I think, of saying that actually you've got um, – the market structure, I think, is playing a role. We're just so good at pricing in events and news that whereas before people could make money by in the two seconds it took for the market to get to where it's meant to be after the news filters in, now it's done in 25 milliseconds. Um, so I do think it's a market structure issue. But then I'm also looking at a world where just about every investor thinks the thing to do at the moment is to sell vol and be sh- and just have a short vol strategy yes that's fine it makes money and it's probably made money for a couple of years now but as i showed in equities last year when it blows up it blows up spectacularly um so it's a question of whether they'll come back to it you know to to loop into the ndf market you know volumes in emerging markets took a long while to recover after the asian crisis around the, you know in the in late 90s so if we do have a blow-up, um, how quickly will people be willing to come back to a short vol play in, in, in G10 and NDS? It would be an interesting one. One other thing I wanted to get, get your thoughts on um, vis-a-vis 24 exchange, um, which is uh, if you go to the, the operating procedures that they put up online regarding exchange, uh, there's one bit about the global code that was quite interesting. And, and the way it, it yeah. sounds – I'll read the quote, which is, each participant must ensure that it and register, its registered traders, authorized agents, as applicable, are familiar with and abide by the requirements of the FX Global Code. So the, um, the question that I put to Dimitri was, are you saying here that in order to use this platform, you must have signed a statement of commitment? Because it kind of sounds a little bit like that from the thing. Yeah. Um, and he actually kind of said um, – <clears throat> That's a really good question, he said, and they haven't quite decided. Uh, but he was he was pretty emphatic that, that the platform will have a very strong preference for people to have signed the statement of commitment. Um, they haven't decided if, if that's going to be a, a requirement to access the platform. But the, the suggestion kind of was that even if it isn't, um, it will be more like, okay, well, you know, we'll agree a time period where – you know, we're going to sit down, you know, you can come onto the platform, but we'll agree a time period where we, where we want to understand why you haven't and what's, what's stopping you from, from doing so. Um, mm. Now, yeah, I should stress that, that that was kind of just one of the things that was floated. It wasn't, no final decisions been made in any which way. But 
I'd be curious to, to get your thoughts on, on whether you would like to see a, a new platform coming to market saying you have to sign the statement of commitment to, to play here. It's a brave call. Um, right. I think in an ideal world, absolutely. I think it'd be a great idea to do that because then you can have a, a little bit more confidence. I mean, there's, there is actually, I mean, I, I think, um, I'm not sure if I can go public with it. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep it anonymous. But there is a platform out there working with a group of LPs um, that is actually building streams for clients that is um, just about uh, the FX Global Code. If you, if you haven't signed a statement of commitment, then you cannot be a part of that stream and you cannot access that stream. Um, so so it's happening in I, I think, part. So I think on the one hand, like you say, it, it's a brave call because you are shutting out, you know, uh, potential clients, potential customers, and money. Mm. Um, on the other, I, I wonder if it doesn't become quite an interesting marketing tool slash differentiating factor. You know, to be yeah, able to go and say, like, if you come yeah. to our platform, right, everyone has signed the statement of commitment. Therefore, we are basically, I mean, I know it's not, <laughs> we've been through the enforceable thing, but like, you know, if, as long yeah, as everyone yeah. abides by their word, we are basically guaranteeing that the, the behavior and standards on our platform. Yeah completely adheres to the, the recognized industry best practices. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think, I think we probably have. It's a brave call, but it's a good marketing call um, because there are growing concerns that some platforms are not willing to do enough to enforce behavior on their platform and that too many of them hide behind, well, we don't know what's going on on other platforms. So by doing this, yeah, it's, 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 it's probably a marketing coup to start with. Um, but given they've shut out the U.S. market, I don't suppose they're bothered about shutting out someone that hasn't signed the FX Global Code. Um, the, I guess the other point I would make on it is that if they're looking at the inter-dealer segment, which I think is where the growth is, and I think they, they see that opportunity there, um, well, pretty much every dealer has signed a statement of commitment to the Global Code anyway. Um, so what it wouldn't be available to is maybe the odd liquidity recycler or the smaller non-bank firms that maybe are still playing around with last look on the edges and things like that. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of think they're probably looking again. The people we want on this platform to start with, they've all signed it anyway. And this is a yeah. This, but it, it's not the worst marketing tool in the world, particularly at this moment in time. So. It's um, it's good. I mean, you know, it's 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 good that Dimitri's back because he does think differently. You know, um, I've I've not always agreed with him with his views, which is fine. Um, he's slightly more successful than me, allegedly, um, but he does think differently, and to me, that's a great thing for the industry. We want different thinkers in here, so we shall see how it goes. Um, on thinking differently, by the way, just before we close out today. Did you see the XTX competition? I did. Like I, I literally for, just saw a LinkedIn today. Yeah, competition for quants sounds fascinating. Um, I, I guess this is sort of, you know, happening more and more. I mean, in, uh, probably in other industries, but it's, it's a different way of, I guess, identifying next generation, isn't it? Having a competition. 
Yeah, and I've I've heard of similar initiatives, um, you know, about like you know crowdsource code and stuff like that, where people can you know submit and just get paid if that code gets used, etc. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it is different. Um, it makes sense. I'm um, I'm mostly curious to know if you're going to be submitting a strategy column. Oh, absolutely, mate. Absolutely, I'm already there. I'm ready yeah. to go with my cranes. Yeah. So many many years ago, um, I was on a high floor in a tower. And one of my trading desks, and I, look, I walked in one day and looked out the window, and there were six cranes I could see, and they were all pointing to the left. And I saw that as a sign, Galen. That was a sign that cable was going down. So I sold sterling and made money. Next day I came in, same thing happened. And it actually went on for a few months. I'd come in, oh, look, there's six cranes. They're all pointing to the left. It's a sign. It just so happened sterling was going down that month, I think, um, which in the 80s happened quite a lot. Um, and I actually thought there was something in it. And I was disabused of that notion probably four or five years ago when Alice Atwood, who worked for us back then, she'd worked, she was a journalist for P&L, but she'd previously worked at Crane Monthly, which, yeah, you just, you got to love that, that magazine. Um, and she told me that uh, cranes are anchored into prevailing wind, which means they were always going to be pointing <laughs> left in the UK out my window. Um, but no, there's plenty of them. Eh? I mean, there were certain things around cartoon strips and um, other photos in the Sun newspaper. There's all these well, strategies. I, I'm getting them all ready to go. I was reading. I was reading a um, a copy of a, a 99 edition of, of P&L, um, and and it was reflecting back on on the FX market up till then. And there was one great pullout quote, which was, um, and I don't even know the context. I just remember the pullout quote in giant letters on the page, which was. Uh, yeah, if the, if the page three girl was big that day, you bought, and if she was small, you sold. <laughs> oh, the good old um, yes, There was also a question. Yes, there was also a question of the the angle of the pose. Is how I'd put it delicately, whether whether well, you bought or remarkable. sold as well. I just think it's remarkable anybody who's willing to be quoted on that. Yeah, <laughs> a different world, a different world. Uh-huh. Yes, there we go. Anyway, um, I'll let you go back to your July the Fourth celebrations. We should wish our American listeners a very happy Independence Day. Um, even though both of us think you'd, you'd have been better off staying with the Brits. Mm, actually, maybe not over the last couple of years, but you, yeah, who knows? Um, 250 years ahead of your time. So happy Independence Day to those. I'm off uh, to compose my letter to Zara and Alex at XTX about my crane strategy. Galen's off to his Independence Day party. We'll thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. <laughs>